Hey, Cole, are you ready to go back to the Oaky Smoky days this week? I do love stories that take place in the Oaky Smoky days. Well, great, because today I'm doing a 2020 American Western horror film that can best be described as something I watched. <laughs> oh, boy. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And thanks for tuning in again on this Saturday, as well as every Saturday. I'm doing a 2020 movie today called The Pale Door. It... I'm sorry. I just... That's like the most lackluster title I've ever heard. Keep going. I can tell you exactly where the title comes from because... The film, when it opens up, it opens up with an Edgar Allan Poe quote from his poem, The Haunted Palace. And the quote references the pale door. I, I'll just, I'll read the quote right now. Um, and then we can get into the movie in a little bit. I don't have a lot of backdrop to this, but so the quote is, while like a ghastly rapid river through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever, a laugh, but smile no more, which makes no sense. It's the, it's literally the last part of the poem. But the weird part is, is the poem is about a king who is terrified that his palace is haunted and that people are trying to get him, basically. It's referenced to be linked to the fall of the House of Usher, but I don't know how. I didn't really do that much of a deep dive into it. And I haven't read enough Poe. But I think somebody like read that poem and was like, ooh, Pale Door, that sounds really interesting. And I tried to reference, like, or reference, I tried to Google, like, other pale door references but like nothing really was coming up so i think people were like oh and there's no pale door in this either <laughs> yeah i want a door made out of the flesh of pale white people like me yeah that's what i wanted this movie to be about so i'm already disappointed how would you get a flesh door to really like work though because flesh is squidgy i mean there would be a wooden door. You would just like tan the flesh and wrap it. Oh, and put it like over the door? Yeah. Huh. People are going to think I'm a sociopath because oh my I'm god. like, oh my God, let me tell you how you can do this. You could do the face on the upper middle and then the door knocker could come out of the face. That would be so sickening. Oh God. Oh, it would be so funny to do something like that for our house. And like not with real human flesh. Obviously, I can't work with that medium, but like to do something like that with our house and just to like freak people out. Even though the only people that come to our front door are, like, delivery people. And the people who steal our deliveries off our porch. Maybe that would stop that from happening. Probably. <laughs> Good Lord. Just put little, like, heads on pikes outside of our door. <laughs> but, like, little doll heads on toothpicks. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so let's get into this. This is an American Western horror, like I said before. What does that mean? It takes place in the Okie Smoky days. Which, I think I looked it up in the official, I think the official um, word on when Okie Smoky days are is somewhere between 1600 and 1900. That's a long period, but that's what I came up with. It's so specific. Also needing to know is this has a mild backdrop of the Salem Witch Trials. 
They do reference that this is 200 years after the Salem Witch Trials in it. Okay, I was about to say, I feel like I saw a cowboy, and those two time periods did not line up. Part of... Okay, I'm not, like, a big plot hole person, but, like, part of the issue with this is there's some, like, serious plot hole timeline things going on in this movie. It is 200 years past the Salem Witch Trials, but there's also some... I'll talk about it. There's someone who exists who should not exist at this time. Anyways... Because my guess is this is probably sometime in the 1800s, would be my guess, is when this is supposed to happen. That seems right. Saloons, brothels. Yeah. Outlaws. Anyway, this was directed by Aaron B. Kuntz. It was also written by him, along with Cameron Burns and Keith Lansdale. So let's just get into it. We open up with kind of the backstory. It's two brothers. They're young at this point. Jake and Duncan. Jake is, well, Jacob, or Jake is the younger one. He's really scared. Duncan has this like really weirdly exaggerated Southern accent, which doesn't make any sense because their dad comes in who is like very hot, but he dies very soon. He does not have an accent. I don't know. Accent. I always comment on accents because like I like accents. This kid is like doing a Southern accent for sure. Oh, okay. Like really crazy. I think this is supposed to take place in Georgia. Only I know this because they reference Macon at one point, but other than that it could just be any place. But wait, is Georgia the Wild West? Why do they say Macon? Is there another Macon? I'm sure there's another Macon. There must be. I just think Macon, Georgia probably because well, because we live in the American South and that's what we would think of. So I actually don't know where this takes place, but it does not look like Georgia. <laughs> okay. Anyway, let's move on. I got a lot. I got too much to get through and I this movie's not that interesting. So, long story short, their house gets burned down and their parents are killed. Okay, that's that's the end of that. But the kids escape. Childhood trauma. It's an excellent backdrop to any story. So then, of course, the brothers are grown up. And the older brother, Duncan, got a lot hotter because he's all scruffy. He loses his accent, which is a good thing. And he's an outlaw. And the younger brother, Jake, is working in a saloon. And he's like, he's like the honest, like, innocent one. And Duncan takes care of him. Okay. Oh, by the way, Duncan is played by Zachary Knighton. Jake is played by Devin Druid. I guess that's his last name. Actually, I didn't not when I first wrote this down, I didn't even think about that. But what, whatever, what a fun name. Okay, so Duncan is basically planning some big train heist, but one of their men is dead, so they need somebody to fill in. And everyone is like, let's just get your brother Jake to fill in. <laughs> Which, I didn't even think about this, but his name is Devin Druid. And they probably should get him to fill in because it's always good to have a Druid in your party. <sighs> moving right along Duncan doesn't want Jake to fill in because he's like that's my younger brother and I don't want him to and Jake's like I'm old enough I can fill in to do this train heist I'm a man yes so I'm jumping I jump around well I don't jump around but I jump forward a lot because part of the problem with this movie I'll get get to it at the end is it drags a lot like some of these scenes are just way too fucking long so they end up like hijacking this train they kill a bunch of people They go to steal the safe on the train, but there isn't a safe. There's a chest, and it's rattling like something living is inside. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so they open it up, and what's inside? It's a girl, and she's got, like, shackles and this Hannibal Lecter mask, and her name is Pearl. Oh, my gosh. Is it, like, did pink balloons come out? Is that how they knew? (laughs) Yeah. That it's a girl. Pink balloons, pink confetti. Gender reveal parties are real fucking weird. I mean, good on you for celebrating, I suppose. But some of them get a little out of hand. I'm just saying. People get hurt at them sometimes, too, because it's like explosions and shit. Fires get started. Literal yeah. fires. Yeah. I don't. Granted, like, we don't have kids, nor will we ever have kids. So ever. I don't. Maybe there's something that I don't, like, get from it. But it's like, 
It's not that big of a deal. Nobody, I'm, honestly, nobody gives a shit what gender your kid is going to be. Also, gender is a social construct. Yeah. As I've said so many times on this podcast. If I were having a kid, honestly, instead of like a gender reveal party, I would just do like, my child has a penis and it would just be like giant penis fanfare everywhere or, you know, vagina, depending. Yeah. Anyways, just to, just to highlight the ridicularity of it, which is my word that I use for ridiculous and hilarious at the same time. I would have a cake and everyone would get real excited, like real excited as I'm like cutting into it and then I would pull it out and the inside would be gray and then boom, a screen would pop up and I would have a PowerPoint about gender being a social construct. <laughs> you gray cake. What flavor is that? Depression? Try the gray stuff. It's delicious. <laughs> and while you're eating it, we will talk about social constructs. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I have bolted the doors. You are here for the next three hours. Buckle up. And Cole's career as a party planner was short-lived. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, okay. So they check the box and they look to see, because they're like, why isn't this a safe with money? Why is it just a girl who is worth next to nothing in these days? And they're like, it's suppo- the safe was supposed to be delivered to Cotton Mather. People might be thinking, I know that name. Everyone knows that name. Who is Cotton Mather? Well, Cotton Mather was, of course, the son of Increase Mather, who was famously one of the orchestrators of the Salem Witch Trials. But Cotton Mather died in 1728. This does not add up because later on in the movie, they literally make reference to how it's kind of the 200-year anniversary of someone being killed in sort of the Salem Witch Trial time period. So there's, like, no way that Cotton Mather is alive still. Like, absolutely no way. No. So I think they just wanted to reference Cotton Mather because they're, like, trying to foreshadow, like, the witchiness in the Salem Witch Trials. It's whatever. I was going to kind of go into this thing about like increased Mather and, and stuff like that. It is interesting, but people can probably look that up. Man, I don't know. I don't want to talk about it right now. But he was like the president of Harvard. Uh, I think they called it college back then for like 20 years and stuff like that. And then he went and killed a bunch of witches. I don't know. He wrote some books. Anyway, his son was a little bit less heinous. So back to the movie. Ultimately, Duncan ends up getting shot by one of the trained people. So he's hurt, and the girl is like, I can take you to my town. There's a doctor there. So she ends up taking him to the town. There's no doctor, but there's a brothel, which she's like, my mother runs that brothel, so let's go in there. I guess that's going to be a substitute for the doctor's office. So anyways, they go in there, and the men are, of course, like, go to the rooms with different brothel people. There's some plot reasons to it, but it's uh, not interesting. So they're in there, and they're kind of like being, like, groomed and bathed and having all the sex and stuff. And then Jake is talking to the mother, who's like the brothel madam. Her name is Maria. She's probably my favorite character in this because she's 100% the best actress. Oh, because one thing I noticed immediately with this movie is the writing is terrible. Three people wrote this, and apparently that was not enough because it is fucking awful. Oh, God. So, yeah. Poor actors. I wasn't sure if the acting was bad, but I'm like, I don't know. I think these actors are actually okay, but it's like hard to write to like deliver these lines. So Maria's played by Melora Walters. Like I said, she's probably my favorite performance in this. So she's talking to Jacob and realizes that he hasn't killed anybody and she gets real interested in it because he's like innocent. Also, I'm pretty sure he like comes out to her because she kind of re- makes reference to the fact that she can read minds and she's like when when all the 
men that you were with came in, there was one thing on their mind, but not you. And he's like, well, I was concerned about my brother. And he, she was like, no, it's something else. And then he was like, let's just say they're not my type. And she was like, oh, you don't see that a lot around these parts. Gay cowboys. Groundbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah. And then later on, he they're trying to like the madam is trying to ex- make an exchange for his life because they want him for reasons I'll get into. And he's like, well, what do you, what are you going to offer me? Money, women, men. Dick. So, yeah. So I actually do think he is gay, but it has literally no bearing on the story. It never really comes up again, which I'm okay with. I like the representation. It was interesting. I also like that he was still considered an innocent, even though he was gay. Cause a lot of people would disagree with that. And we call those people awful. So, that being said, things go pretty crazy pretty quickly. All the brothel girls morph into these, like, burnt-up witches. And, like, they're, like, crawling on the ceilings and stuff. The movie kind of, to be honest, kind of drags on for, like, 15, 20 minutes. I was timing it, where practically nothing happens. It's like this scene where it's like they escape the brothel, but then, like, nothing really... It's, like, very slow-paced for this, like, scene where the witches were chasing them. And then it kind of like they're in the woods for a second and they ultimately end up running to the church in the town. The town is very, very small, by the way. But they ultimately go into the church and they figure out that the witches can't enter the church. But for some reason, their magic can kind of affect them in the church. And so it's like some weird shit happens. And then they're like, okay, we have to like survive this. What are we going to do? And I'm not going to say any more about the plot because the movie came out last year and people may want to watch it. It's streaming on Shutter, by the way, if anybody wants to see it. It's. If you do, that's your choice. I don't necessarily think that you'll be happy that you spent an hour and a half of your life doing that, but you can. I don't know. It's it's weird because this has been like a very short summary. The movie does not have that much left to it. And yet still, I've basically described almost all of the major plot points to it. Because part of my problem with the pace in this movie is real fucking whack. It is like the it's like they'll just spend like 10 minutes in the woods talking about how they need to escape these witches, standing in the same fucking place. And then it, like, rains blood at one point, and I'm like, okay, it's raining blood. But, like, nothing really happens from it. They're like, oh, God. You know, like it does. You know a movie's bad when you're so disinterested that raining blood, you're just like, eh, whatever. Yeah. And then, so, okay. Then also, I will say this about the ending. There is this, like, big reveal about Jacob's backstory, about how their parents were killed in the beginning and why they were killed. But it's actually, like, very uninteresting. And it's supposed to be, like, they were told that Jacob's parents were killed because they had been attacked by, like, robbers and stuff. And they were getting robbed. And so they were killed so that the people could, like, plunder them. And that ends up not being the case. It was something different. But the something different is really stupid. Like, it wasn't interesting. Like, I could have written something more interesting than that. Like, hands down, any day. I could come up with something right now. Like, they could have been witches. That would have been more interesting and actually kind of relevant to the plot. But they weren't. God. I just came off that with the top of my head. I could have written this. I'm submitting the screenplay right now. Gentle listener, he's real proud. You should see the grin on his face. (laughs) Anyway, the res okay, and ultimately the ending of this movie is super unsatisfying. Like I said, I'm not going to spoil it because I don't know, maybe people want to watch it, but it's not it's unsatisfying. That's the only way I can describe it. Anyways, let me just get into the final thoughts of this movie because I have a couple things to say. Okay, so I already mentioned the bad writing in this movie. Probably my primary complaint. 
It was okay. This movie is clearly low budget. I cannot deny that because you can kind of just tell the production quality is okay. And actually, one of the positives in it is the special effects are are very well done. It's there's a lot of cool blood and gore moments, but the writing is bad. And I think what they needed to do was kind of embrace the camp of it a little bit more because it had potential. The story was interesting, even though. The story is like almost 100% a knockoff of Dusk Till Dawn because I don't know if you've seen Dusk Till Dawn. What do you think? I'm going to go with no. But Dusk Till Dawn is a Quentin Tarantino movie where kind of these like bad guy, it's modern times. So these like bad guy, I don't know what to even call them, robber, thieves, whatever, seek kind of refuge in this like strip club brothel situation that ends up being this like ancient vampire temple and all the strippers are like vampire monsters and they have to like survive the night with them it's a very similar storyline except instead of vampires they're witches yeah but dusk till dawn is very entertaining because it it, i mean it spawned a lot of following i mean it has a bunch of bad sequels too but like people really got into it because it was so outrageous and it embraced that this needed to embrace that a little bit more i just it wasn't witty enough. There weren't enough kind of like one-liners. I think it should have. I think it was a low-budget movie trying to come off more as this like very serious blockbuster horror. Where really a lot of times, I, in my opinion, a lot of low-budget horror movies need to embrace the fact that that's what they are. And be kind of campy, funny. Not like slapstick haha, but like understand what you are. Yeah. Anyways. Here's another thing I have not, I did not mention because I only mentioned a very brief amount of this movie and I didn't go over all the characters. But let me just say this. There is a character in the movie. He is a Native American character played by a Native actor. He is mute. And his name, his character's name is Chief. And let me just say, I don't inherently find it offensive But I also don't understand why the character was in it other than to try to fulfill this trope of like the lone native character in this band of outlaws. He's also killed basically as fodder. So he provides no purpose to the story other than to sit there and like give this like weird guidance through sign language to one of the people at some point. It seemed unnecessary. I don't understand it tokenism stereotypes racism it was tokenism and to be honest so then the other i'm trying to think yes the only other person of color in the entire cast is when so when the boy's parents are killed they're rescued by the this older black guy who ends up raising them and he his backstory is apparently that he was like a former slave freed by the kid's parents so he raises them as his own and, like, that's the only other person of color is, like, this, like, freed slave character. I don't know. It was weird to me. Yeah, seems a little unnecessary. I mean, all in all, I guess my biggest disappointment with this movie, because I don't think the movie is unwatchable. I just think it was kind of boring. I think this movie could have literally been 20 minutes shorter and way better. I think what I was supremely disappointed in is that I knew it was an Old West movie, and I knew that from the preview, you know this, that it's a brothel that ends up being a brothel of witches that are, like, luring these outlaws in. That sounds like a good plot to me. Yeah, no, like, I'm listening to it, and I'm like, that sounds kind of cool. But then, so briefly after, you were like, and that's basically all the plot I'm going to talk about, and I'm like, oh, (laughs) there's a lot of filler in that. 
I mean, I'll I'll tell you exactly how it ends, but to be truthful with you, like there's not that much like witchiness to it or anything. Like they can't enter the church. There's some like death scenes that are kind of fun where like they use their magic to make some guy in the church eat glass and then ultimately they make him cut his own throat. But they don't really explain why they can't go into the church, but their magic is completely useful in the church. And then like if that's the case, why don't they just use the magic to kill everybody in the church? It's like, I don't know. They're, they don't go far enough with the witchiness. It's also, it's a brothel and... So I kind of wanted to see, you know, some like, I don't know how else to describe it. I wanted to see more like seductiveness, but they kind of like flopped on that. And the witches are creepy when they morph into their burnt selves, which I guess they explain by like a lot of them were witches that were burnt at the stake, but were immortal brought back. I don't know. There was There's a lot of plot holes in this movie. And it wasn't, like I said... Plot holes are totally fine when the camp factor is there because you realize it's not to be taken seriously. I think this movie was taking itself seriously, and so it just failed. Yikes. Look, it. I'm not hard to satisfy. I want big titty witches. I want magical spell casting, and I want gay cowboys. This movie had all of them, and then it still couldn't deliver. God. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. That's Pale Door. Also... I don't understand the title <laughs> again because it has nothing to do with the poem. It I literally think it was the person who wrote it. The director was like, Ooh, pale door. That sounds real interesting for a horror movie. Let's just call this movie pale door. That sounds ooky spooky for my ooky smoky. Yeah. I would have called this movie big titty brothel witches and people would have loved it. BTBW. Anyway. So, okay. That's the pale door kind of a flop i wish to be honest i wish it was even worse too so i could have made more fun of it but at the end of the day it was just kind of boring sadly yeah but that being said now you can tell me what you're going to talk about all right peaches so brace yourself because i have another titanic book this week like i said i really love the titanic thankfully though whereas your movie took itself too seriously my book does not take itself seriously at all um that said I know that in the interest of not revealing spoilers last week, it was kind of lacking in the horror department because a lot of the horror and the supernatural aspects were kind of tied up in the ending, and I feel kind of bad about that. So that's why this week I'm doing 2012's Deck Z, The Titanic, Unsinkable, Undead. Wait, so this is a zombie Titanic thing? Uh, Yes, like undead, as in zombies. Z is in zombies, and not zombies like Hadriana and All My Dreams, but zombies is in flesh eating. That sounds great. It's awesome. So let's dive right into the cover. It was designed by Emily Dubin, and the illustration part of it was done by Lydia Ortiz. Uh, there's also like fun illustrations inside, like all the chapter headings have like little things at the tops and stuff. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. The top half of the cover is the Titanic scene from the stern during a departure. I've seen like a million different pictures like this. It's great. The bottom half is like worn damask wallpaper with a giant zombie hand coming up. And unlike the deep where you aren't really sure what you're getting, you know right away from the cover of this one. It's so good. The Titanic looks kind of like a boring boat. I'm just going to say that. Like... There's no water slides, there's no pool, there's no, like, observation deck. Actually, 
There was a pool in the Titanic. Was it an under? Was it uh, not underground? It wasn't on the deck. It was below deck. Yes. I just feel like it looks like a freighter ship to me. I don't know. I didn't. This is this is going to be a shocker of the world. I have not seen the movie Titanic. So I don't really have any idea for like the grandioseness of like what was inside that. But from that from the outside, that boat looks boring. Well, this could be even more of a shocker. I have not actually seen the entirety of the movie Titanic because it came out when I was seven and I'm like seven or eight and I wasn't allowed to see it because it had boobs in it. (laughs) It might have turned you straight. Don't tell my parents that they'll look for a time machine. (laughs) Just kidding. My parents are very supportive now. They weren't always, but they are like absolutely wonderful now and they love Max to bits and pieces. But you know what? Um... You know, like, what was inside the Titanic, though, right? Like, the room. I assume you're more, you have to know more than me, but you're, you probably know, like, more of, like, what the different floors were made up of and stuff, right? Oh. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I just haven't seen the entirety of the movie with Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. That's, like, my one thing. There was, like, a Turkish bath and a gymnasium. The gymnasium had, like, a horse riding machine. I remember that kind of being a thing that was talked about. And there was a library and a swimming pool and, like, all kinds of stuff. See, when you look at the outside of that boat, I would not think of that. Well, it's not going to look like a carnival cruise. It was built in 1912. Well, like, 1910-ish. But, like, it sailed in 1912. It's got smokestacks and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Things were coal-powered back then. (laughs) Things are coal-powered now. Some people really want them to stay that way. Anyway, let's move on. Oh, boy. We have um, meandered, but let's go ahead and take a look at the blurb. (laughs) I may not cut this in, but speaking of coal power, (laughs) it just makes me think about how when we got married, neither of us changed our last names. And I said that we should just come up with a new last name that would fit both of us. And my suggestion was power. So then our name would be Max Power and Coal Power. That's just a side note. Let's continue. Oh, boy. Imagine being trapped aboard the doomed Titanic on an icy Atlantic with the walking dead. This fast-paced thriller reimagines the historical events of the fateful Titanic voyage through the lens of zombie mayhem. Captain Edward Smith and his inner circle desperately try to contain the weaponized zombie virus smuggled on board with the 2,200 passengers sailing to New York. Faced with an exploding population of lumbering, flesh-hungry undead, Smith's team is forced into bloody hand-to-hand combat down the narrow halls of the huge steamer. In its few short days at sea, the majestic Titanic turns into a Victorian bloodbath, steaming at top speed toward a cold, blue iceberg. Also, Titanic wasn't Victorian, but whatever. So the story opens with a pretty bullshit prologue that leaves us pretty sure of what will happen. So it takes place in modern times on an expedition to the wreck of the Titanic, and they're salvaging artifacts for a historical exhibit. And the guy who's like collecting the artifacts even says, it keeps the dead alive, which is pretty heavy handed foreshadowing. But I see what you're doing. I see you authors who, because I'm garbage, I forgot to say their names, which are Chris Pauls and Matt Solomon. Two guys, one book. Two guys, one book. Anyway, they find a metal cylinder and they collect that right before the prologue fades to black. So it's like, oh no, I wonder if a metal cylinder is going to have anything to do with the story. So the actual interesting story opens up with Dr. Weiss. He is an infectious diseases doctor and he's being called to 
this like nomadic tribe where two members are exhibiting symptoms and they are incoherent and they're violent. And mucus is oozing from presumably every orifice. (laughs) We know it's coming from their ears, nose, mouth, and eyes. More Mm. delicate regions are not mentioned. But we can assume. Mm. Anyway, one of them bites a shaman woman and vice is like, I'll take her for study. And they're like, sure, fine, whatever. What could possibly go wrong? So we fast forward a bit and vice has her in like an enclosure of sorts in the basement of this cabin in the middle of the woods. It's weird. And he's like harvesting her mucus. Ew. So that he can like figure out. He's trying to find a cure basically. Um, It's all very like mad scientisty. And then he realizes that, and I, the thing is, I didn't actually know which government, but it's not super important, but the government of some country is going to try to acquire what he calls the toxic, which is the mucus, to use as a biological weapon, because keep in mind, this takes place like right before World War I, because um, 1912. Yeah, sure. And they were going to use it on Russia, I think. So because he doesn't want it to be weaponized, he wants to find a cure. He sets fire to his cabin and he flees with the toxic in a metal cylinder. Bum, bum, bum. While doing so, the zombie shaman woman escapes and chases him down on literal fire. She's like running through the woods after him. Fire zombies. Yep. But that's when he learns that shooting them in the head is the only way to stop them from coming. So as he is heading to where the Titanic is saying sail from so that he can escape to America and continue searching for a cure. An agent who's literally just called the agent is trying to track him down because they basically, they found the fire and everything was destroyed, but they assume that he has a sample. So they're trying to find him. So the agent kills a newspaper man, steals his identification and his first class Titanic ticket and things like that. Presumably they look the same. So that's all to set up for the good stuff. Uh, Vice is waiting in line to board the Titanic when he sees a young child who he pays to act like they are traveling together so that anyone observing him will be thrown off the trail because they'll be looking for someone traveling alone. This child is Lou, short for Louise, and she is a treasure in a zombie book, which made me very nervous the entire time. (laughs) Not a lot happens here. There's some what I like to call history gems where the authors let us know that they read like a Titanic book. They probably did more research than that, but it's all kind of like surface level information. Names are named. Details are sprinkled in. Mm-hmm. It was it was cute. It was fine. So eventually Vice gets a note from Lou saying to like, come to the room that she and her mother are in quick. There's something going on. But surprise, when he gets there... It was actually the agent, and the agent knocks him out. And when he comes to in a storage room, he vehemently denies having the toxic. And he's like, no, it's just ink. It's a decoy. I don't have the toxic. So the agent rips out one of his molars. Unnecessary. I also don't like horror that involves teeth, nails, or eyeballs. Yeah, you've said that to me before. Eyeballs, I can sort of handle. Teeth, nails, can't do it. I just, mm-mm, nope, mm-mm, firm pass, no thanks. And then he goes to test the toxic on someone just in case. And he leaves Vice tied up. Vice somehow gets out. I don't even remember how. It's not important. And he explains everything to the physician who doesn't believe him. 
But then it's like, oh, there is this one cook and he's like a seasoned sailor, but he was experiencing seasickness. And ironically enough, like that's the start of the symptoms for the toxic. So Vice is like, we need to go check on him. So they go to his room, but he's nowhere to be found. And Vice does see, however, clear mucus with black streaks, which is part of the second stage of the illness. So it's like you're basically like headachy and nauseous. Then you're delirious and you have like streaky mucus and then you are a zombie with black mucus. Okay. It's basically how it goes. So he follows the mucus because there's apparently enough of it that he's able to like either follow drops of it on the floor or like the cook had it on his hands and touched a door frame, that sort of thing. It's a horror novel. It doesn't have to be logical. But apparently Timothy, our cook, was just kind of like sliming everywhere. I slime you. I slime you. (laughs) Ghostbusters. While he's doing this, the physician is going to get the master at arms, which is basically like the sheriff on this boat ship thing. Anyway, he's just finished killing the fully zombified Timothy with a giant meat hook when the physician and the master at arms show up. It's a really satisfying fight scene, like straight out of a zombie flick. It's awesome. But of course, we're only about a third of the way through the book, so they only witness the killing, and they lock him up. Shortly thereafter, though, the now-infected Master at Arms, I think he, like, handled Timothy's mucusy dead body mm-hmm. without gloves, charges into where Vice is being held and attacks him, because he's, like, a super zombie now. And Captain Smith happens upon them and saves Vice with his saber. Yes, his saber, because Captain Smith is a master swordsman. And now everyone believes the scientist because we can't just believe scientists. (laughs) (laughs) If we aren't personally in danger, that scientist doesn't know what he's talking about. No. Well, they probably didn't know who to believe back then because they didn't have YouTube. Or Facebook. Oh, my God. They didn't have that, like, one crazy uncle on Facebook to tell them the real story. Oh, God. Anyway. So... Everyone kind of like gets together and they decide they're going to quarantine the entire deck that Timothy is on. And what was once deck E is now being called deck Z. Which is fine. It was cute. So here's where things start to get wild. So Bruce Ismay, who was the chairman and managing director of the White Star Line, which is the company that built the Titanic, goes to the bridge to handle things because the captain is going to fight the zombies with several other notable people, most important being Thomas Andrews, who designed the Titanic. That's like a little cluster, just so you know who I'm talking about when I say names. Mm -hmm. Bruce Ismay, who has a reputation for being a little bitch because he was the highest ranking White Star Line employee to survive, like actually was just like hated for the rest of his life in real life, gets a new story here. His concern isn't for the people on board. It's for the reputation of the White Star Line. So he orders full steam ahead because his plan is to arrive to New York the night before it was expected to and take care of the zombie issue before the press gets to the docks. I'm pretty sure people are going to notice what was the largest ocean liner at the time pulling up to the dock and press will show up pretty quick. But whatever, we can dream. I'm sure that'll go well for him. Down below deck, Vice... Captain Smith, Andrews, and company are on deck Z, and their plan is to check each cabin and basically, like, weld the doors of the infected passengers shut. What do you do? Like, knock and be like, are there any zombies in here? They just, like, open their the door and tried to see if people were coherent or not. Oh, okay. Or if there was mucus everywhere. 
Just all the mucus. Slippery. They soon discover that basically the entire deck is infected. And here we get a really nice, like, classic scene of zombie mayhem. The lights go out. That sort of thing. It's super over the top in a really great way. Captain Smith, like we said, master swordsman. Thomas Andrew fills racquetballs with kerosene, sets them on fire, and, like, thwacks them at people. (laughs) So he's, like, a ranged fighter here. It's really great. Also, just for anyone who's curious, our zombies are... Primarily shamblers with a little bit of rushing here and there. Because you know how there's like fast zombies and slow zombies? Yeah. Primarily slow zombies here. Both of them are terrifying. Zombies actually, like of all the like movie monster sort of things, zombie stories actually scare me. Especially post-COVID. Because I can see now just how poorly that would go. Uh, I mean, yeah. We would all die. Hands down. Just all of society. Anyway, eventually our heroes are hiding out in a potato storage room. Okay. Which is like weirdly specific, but uh, there were 2,200 people on board and potatoes are a real good starch. I love potatoes. Anyway, that's where they find Lou and she's okay, but her mother had become a zombie. Bum, bum, bum. Also, while talking here, this is where they deduce that the toxic is an evolution of the Black Plague, like the bubonic plague. Sure. And the agent must not have given it to a person, but to a rat instead. And that's why it spread so fast, because of fleas. Which is fine, I guess. Like, tangentially makes sense. But then they're like, okay, we need to cover all of our exposed skin, because there could be fleas anywhere. And I'm just like, bitch, you probably already have them if they're everywhere. Yeah, also, covering your exposed skin is not going to thwart fleas, necessarily. That just seems impossible to do, but okay. Yeah, I mean, so our cat is an indoor cat, and she still occasionally gets fleas because we live in a century-old house, and there's, it's not, like, fully sealed off. And I get them every single time she does. So, yeah, no. Covering your exposed skin, too little, too late. Anyway, they decide that they're going to make their way to the bakery where there's, like, a phone to the bridge, and they can call and have the watertight doors shut. Those doors only close in the lower decks, which is one of the reasons the Titanic sank. But their theory is that that's where the zombies are the most prevalent because the food is stored in the lower decks. So the rats are in the lower decks. Rats, fleas, people. So they're going to close the watertight doors so the only way the zombies can go is up and then post guards at the tops of all the stairwells, which is fine. I guess they've just decided that everyone in the lower decks can go fuck themselves. But for the most part, that was steerage in third class. So (laughs) that tracks. Yeah. So they cover all their exposed skin and they head out. Meanwhile, up top, little asshole Bruce receives the ice warnings that famously never made it to the bridge and decides to pocket them so that the ship doesn't slow down. So that's their explanation as to why the the warnings didn't get to the captain. Exactly. Classic Bruce. Our heroes make their way to the bakery with a zombie horde following them. There's like a giant exhaust fan in the rear of the bakery and Captain Smith slips his sword into the fan to stop it so that they can all climb through and then he pulls it out so the fan starts up again and it just chops up the zombies that are following them nonstop. (laughs) It's just like a zombie chopper. It's like that little tap chopper that there used to be infomercials for. Slap chop. Slap chop. Um, So they call up to the bridge and 
little asshole Bruce ignores his orders to drop the watertight doors because that would mean Cole would not be able to easily get to the engines, so he wouldn't be able to go full steam ahead, hangs up and rips the bridge phone out of the wall. Classic Bruce. Classic Bruce. So I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to try and wrap things up fast. Our heroes fight their way to a control box where Andrews is somehow able to hotwire it to close all of the doors manually. While he's working on that, they turn on a gas stove, but don't light the fire. So it's just like natural gas everywhere while he's doing this. And as the watertight door is dropping in front of a crowd of zombies, Andrews hits his final kerosene ball just as the gap is closing, causing an explosion on the other side of the door. It's fun. It's satisfying. You see it coming, but it's still delightful. That's when the Titanic hits the iceberg. I know you're real shocked (laughs) and didn't see that coming. And they quickly assess that the ship is fucked. So our heroes fight slash make their way up onto the boat deck where passengers are being loaded into the lifeboats. Along the way, Captain Smith gets bitten on top of his head, which is weird. And Andrews convinces him that he needs to fight until he feels himself turning, which is cool. It's actually really well done. And it's very like Captain goes down with the ship. Um... Because the zombies obviously end up coming up to the deck and he's fighting and fighting. And then once he feels himself starting to lose grip on reality, he basically like ties himself to like a table or something and then just keeps fighting whenever anyone gets close enough to him until he's too far gone. Then on the other end of the spectrum, we have little asshole Bruce who skedaddled to a lifeboat and left. Classic Bruce. Classic Bruce. So... Vice has been checking passengers to make sure that none of the sick ones get on a lifeboat. And there's a very tearful goodbye as he forces Lou to get on a boat. I've left out a lot, but they bond really heavily throughout the course of the story. It's very sweet. And Lou's like, no, I don't want to leave. I can help you. And Vice is like, no, you have to be safe. Here, take this little girl. And then like the boat drops. It's very sad. Shortly after, he hears a first class passenger and she is complaining that someone took her best wig. (laughs) And at the beginning of the book, which I kind of left out, he and Lou had been like shadily joking about her because rumor has it that she brought like 14 trunks and most of them wore wigs. And he suddenly realizes that the agent might have escaped the ship by stealing her wig. (laughs) So he frantically searches and lo and behold, there on Lou's lifeboat, which is still close by, is someone in layers of like furs and shawls so that they're mostly covered and the lady's nice wig. So he jumps ship into the water and he screams at Lou, the one with the 14 trunks, until Lou realizes what he's talking about because that's weird. And then she goes to take the toxic from the agent, but he pulls a gun and starts threatening everyone on the lifeboat. Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, the ship has been sinking. So in all of this time, like it's already broken in half, bow is gone, stern is on its way down for context. Then, in our final name drop of the book, the unsinkable Molly Brown hits the agent and he drops the toxic. Do you know who the unsinkable Molly Brown was? No. She was a lady who was sailing on the Titanic in first class. She had been on several ocean liner voyages where the ship had sunk, but she survived and she earned the nickname the unsinkable Molly Brown. Hmm. So she hits the agent, he drops the toxic, Lou grabs it, and just as the stern is sinking below the waves, which is something that caused a good deal of, like, suction. Lou tosses the toxic into said suction, and it goes straight down. And the agent, 
not thinking, jumps after and straight down. And then Vice, who's tired and is like, I've lived a very difficult life, just instead of continuing to swim towards the lifeboat, lets himself get pulled back to the suction and straight down. And that's basically the end. We're treated to a brief epilogue where an exhibit is being set up in modern Las Vegas. And a woman is asking, like, the guy who had gone on the expedition about the metal tube when a slight earthquake hits. And so the guy from the prologue runs to make sure everything's okay. And she decides that she's going to take out the glass vial from the tube to see what it is. And then she puts it down to look at her phone and another tremor hits and the book closes right as the vial topples and is rolling towards the edge of the table. Bum, bum, bum. The end. So all in all, I'm going to give this book four out of five wigs snatched and stolen. For the most part, it's just really good. Like it's like a fun zombie story with, in my opinion, the perfect blend of history gems and historical inaccuracies to really just make it a good time. Uh, The only reason it's not getting a five, I guess two, there are a couple of points where the pacing gets a little puttery and uneven. And then I also just feel like the prologue and the epilogue could not be there and it would be totally fine. It felt very superfluous to try and give that like bomb, bomb, bomb kind of vibe at the end. But you really didn't need that. Honestly, it was unnecessary. But yeah, that's Dexy. It sounds pretty good. If you were in Dexy, would you be killed? 100%. So anyone who knows me knows that I have terrible luck. And anything bad that can happen to me will happen to me. So I have fully accepted that in the event of a zombie apocalypse, I'm fizzucked. Would you die in the pale door? Probably. Everyone more or less dies in it except for basically one character. Although, I don't know. I mean, I guess yes. Though I would not die as easily as the bandits because I would, of course, not be enjoying the brothel. But... Yeah, I mean, the witches, they're pretty creepy in it because they can, like, walk on walls and they're all, like, burnt up and, like, they, like, have claws and shit. So, yeah, I probably would. It seems, like, hard to survive. Plus, like, they can control people with their, like, magics and stuff. So, I'm going to go with a yes on this one. Lots of death this time around. There's a, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people killed. I mean, I did a book about the Titanic, Max. We can't do that without thinking about the 1,500 people who lost their lives. True. In the mm. ocean's icy clutches. So. Near, far, wherever you are. God, we're going to hell. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, and concerns or suggestions at Second to Die Pod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.